Welcome to our podcast, where we are offering the best from Temple Solel in Paradise Valley, Arizona. Here our clergy team of Rabbi John Linder, Rabbi Debbie Steele, and cantorial soloist Todd Herzog share their weekly insights from our Shabbat services and beyond. Temple Solel is a vibrant and engaged reform community grounded in relationships and deeds and elevated by Shabbat and Torah. We welcome all who seek a connection to Jewish life regardless of religious background, race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, ability, age, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Don't forget to subscribe to get a notification for our next episode. Find more information at www.templesolel.org. I look at the alignment of this week's Torah portion, Shoftim, and the new Hebrew month of Elul as the perfect constellation to guide us into the new year. Elul, as shared a little earlier, is the month leading into Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah. It's an opportunity for us to take a deep spiritual dive, a Cheshbon Nefesh, an accounting of our souls. Uh, This in contrast with the Torah portion that focuses on the most consequential community decisions. Shoftim, the Hebrew word for judges, deals with concerns of the judiciary. We have a front row seat to view the establishment of a legal system intended to hold one another accountable for our actions. For example, if there is found among you in one of the settlements that your God Adonai is giving you, a man or a woman who has affronted your God Adonai and transgressed the covenant, turning to the worship of other gods and bowing down to them, to the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host, something I never commanded. And you have been informed or have learned of it, then you shall make an inquiry. So first of all, just to see if you're with me here, um, what's the violation? What was the violation? Sum it up. It's two words, one word. What's the violation? I heard it. Idol worship. Idol worship. Yes, that is it. And this is a serious breach. The first three of the Ten Commandments deals with this. No other gods, no sculptured image. Don't bow down and serve them. And now let's hear the consequences of idol worship. If it is true, the fact is established that abhorrent thing was perpetrated in Israel, you shall take the man or the woman who did that wicked thing out into the public square, and you shall stone that man or woman to death. I'm going to bail you out in a bit. 
a little bit. A person shall be put to death only on the testimony of two or more witnesses. No one shall be put to death on the testimony of a single witness. Let the hands of the witnesses be the first to put the condemned to death, followed by the hands of the rest of the community. Thus you will sweep out evil from your midst. The death penalty for idol worship is indeed severe. But I would ask you to put that to the side, please, and focus on the magnitude of the role of the common citizen. It's really quite remarkable. A justice system that is heavily reliant on the individual, or at least two or more witnesses in this case. And there is no anonymity here. The witnesses not only have to publicly step forward, they are the first to lead the stoning. And then the rest of the community must participate. The biblical execution of justice relies on the building blocks of the individual. The welfare of the community rests upon the integrity of the witnesses and the conscience of each individual community member. Of course, this system of justice, some of which is reflected in our own justice system today, leaves room for injustice. Maybe the witnesses were coerced. Maybe this feeds into tribal, nationalistic, gang mentality, the dark side of human nature, that makes minorities or outsiders the most vulnerable. Yet here's the irony and beauty of Torah. On one hand, we bow only to one God, our God, the all-knowing, all-powerful God. Yet for crimes against one another and the earth entrusted to our care, we are accountable to one another. This is a law created by human beings. Torah invites us to consider more expansively, just in case none of you see yourselves as idol worshipers, Torah invites us to consider more expansively the idols we all worship in one way or another, how we buckle to temptations that are hurtful to others, diminish ourselves, and puts us at a distance from God's life-sustaining love. In this way, God, as a parent, does not control our decisions, just hopes to give us the tools to make the healthiest decisions possible, and gives us and gives us the chance to repent when, when we do not make healthy decisions. And no, we do not stone idol worshipers. In the context of our biblical narrative, God and Moses are preparing our people, the Israelites, in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to live 
elevated lives in the promised land. Moses says to the Israelites, if after you have entered the land that your God Adonai has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, you decide, I will set a king over me as do all the nations about me. You shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by God. Be sure to set as king over yourself one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over you, one who is not your king, your kin. Moreover, the king shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Since God has warned you, you must not go back that way. And the king shall not have many wives, lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. Again, with all of the cautionary flags against idol worship and lifting up God as the king of kings, Torah makes it clear that the high heavens are God's domain and the earth is our domain, but not exclusively. In this way, Torah holds the tension of an ideal and the real world. If God insists on perfection from humanity, there would be a flood story every 10 generations. Yet God, we know, makes a covenant of acquiescence, vowing to never bring a flood again, being more lenient with human cravings. God, through Torah, grants the people's desire to have a king. Yet here's what's most revolutionary, both back in ancient times and today. Checks and balances are put in place that limit the king's powers. Too many horses can lead to both self-glorification and the delusion that massive military might makes you self-sufficient and no longer dependent upon God. Similarly, the vast number of wives may undermine the king's loyalty to God. So too is the concern for a foreign king who would be less likely to commit completely to worshiping God, worshiping God alone. And finally, gold, silver, it leads to opulence and self aggrandizement, often at the expense of and on the shoulders of those that serve the king. There are restraints put on the king curbing his or her potential appetite for power. The only requirement, the only requirement of the king in Torah is to have a copy of the Torah, a Mishnah Torah, by his side and study it diligently. In this way, the king and citizens share the primary common goal of the Jew, 
through Torah to humble ourselves before a power greater than us, to fear God, that is to be in awe of the creator of heaven and earth. The king lives under the same law and no one is above it. As we do daily through the month of Elul, we blow the shofar to wake us up to the sacred space of these days leading up to the new year. The more whole we feel, the more love we have for ourselves, the more studying and carrying Torah out into the world, the more impact we will have as compassionate citizens pursuing justice for all within our community, our country, and our world. God, who makes peace in the high heavens, gives us the agency to be messengers of peace on earth. Shabbat.